I was reading some articles online about uh, how to know if you have a genuine Rolex. Uh, <laughs> I had to look up articles online because that's the only way I was ever going to ever get near a Rolex, it turns out. Uh, but if you have one, it'd be cool for you to listen up to this because you may think you have one and you really don't. Uh, and this would be really clarifying for you. Uh, and even if you don't have a Rolex, this is really, really good because it's called illustration and it connects the sermon to something that you also find interesting. So either way, this is, is great. Okay. Uh, so I was looking up online and I'm like, well, how, how does one know that they have a real Rolex? Because it's important because Rolexes are expensive, right? And they're costly. Uh, and you got to know if you're paying the money for something, like, is it the genuine article? There's, there's a couple of ways. Uh, one, uh, what you should do is to fill up an, a, a giant bucket okay, with water and throw that thing in there. Okay? Uh, because if you have a genuine Rolex, it's going to be fine. Right? If you don't, it's not going to be fine. And you're going to be sorely upset and mistaken that you, in fact, paid a lot of money for something that was not real. Uh, also, uh, the mechanisms in a Rolex are so smooth, and I don't even know all the things about it, but in my country vocabulary, just smooth, okay? That when you put it up to your ear, it doesn't make a sound, right? So if you uh, may have what you think is a Rolex, if you pick it up and put it next to your ear, if you hear that thing ticking, you don't got a Rolex, okay? You could have a bomb, but you don't have a Rolex, <laughs> all right? <laughs> uh, Something else you, you would notice if you have a Rolex, uh, the second hand, uh, it should not jerk at all. Right? It, uh, the, the second hand on a Rolex is very smooth. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't have any jerking or sudden movements. It's very smooth all the way around. If you look at your watch and you see that it has little jerking motions, you don't have a Rolex. You have a watch, but you don't have a, a Rolex watch. There's a lot of things you can do when it comes to a Rolex to make sure that you have the right one. There's a serial number on it. There's all these ways that you can confirm whether or not you have the genuine article. Because it's important uh, in a lot of things in life that we have markers that show us what is real and what is, what is false. Isn't that nice? I mean, it's nice as, as a human being that there are lots of things in our world uh, where we uh, have an understanding about certain objects and certain things uh, that we can make a distinction about what is real and what is, uh, what is faulty, like what is, a, what, what is uh, not real versus what is real. So in the Bible, uh, particularly there in Matthew 5, 9, uh, gives us a really good marker of what a genuine Christian looks like. As a matter of fact, I hope you turn there in your Bible. If you haven't, go ahead and turn there now. Uh, and can somebody also, tech, tech team, could you guys fix this ring here in my... Uh, and my mic, I don't want to hear that the whole time. As you're flipping there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, you're, you're going to understand something really pivotal to the Christian life. Uh, and I put it in the preaching point like this, that the genuine marker of a child of God is diligently laboring, even at great personal cost, to be peacemakers in every sphere of life. Like there is something that Matthew 5 9 teaches us that tells us that there is a genuine marker. There is something uh, in your life that, will, that can determine and give you assurance that you are indeed a child of God. And that is what Pastor Evan had read, and I'll read to you once more in Matthew 5 9. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons 
of God. Right? If you want assurance in your faith, and we're all about giving people assurance in their faith because we all need in some time, in some way in our lives, assurance of our faith. Uh, markers in our life that say you have been born again, you are full of the Holy Spirit. That's why we believe that uh, fruit of the Spirit is so important in the life of the Christian because if I have been redeemed and, and, and reborn uh, and I'm no longer the old creation but Christ uh, just as Christ was buried, I too have been buried, and just as he was raised, I am also raised in the newness of life. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. Uh, there should be markers in my life that, that help me see uh, my genuine faith. And this is a really, really good marker in Matthew 5.9 to ask yourself, do I have, like the Rolex watch, do I have a marker that is a determinative marker of the proof of my salvation? And Matthew 5, 9 does that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That is, God looks down, even in the here and now, and says, uh, these are my children. And who are those children? The, the ones who are peacemakers, right? Now, I'm not talking about what your view of peacemaking is or uh, what... Uh, the world's idea of, uh, of peacemaking is, I'm not saying go and join a club that's all about peace. We're talking about biblical peace. We're talking about gospel peace. And that's important because gospel peace uh, is determinative in our life because you can't have Christ if you don't have the gospel and the response to the gospel evident in your life. Right? We all understand that the gospel, I hope you do, if not, well, welcome to church and we'll talk about it. Uh, the gospel is, is imperative and pivotal and important when it comes to peace with God. And therefore, if you have peace with God through Christ, and that is because you've responded to the good news of Christ, you then are a child of God and children of God are peacemakers. Do we follow that line of reasoning? Okay, This is why this is a really good determinant marker of a Christian is, do you make peace? And that's the whole sermon this morning, is making sure that we are peacemakers. Because if we're not peacemakers, we're not displaying the genuine characteristics of our Father, which proves to be an identity problem, isn't it? If I'm not a peacemaker, and I know that my Father is a peacemaker, that I then have an identity problem, and I often lack an assurance of faith because I don't indeed reflect the Father that I claim has saved me, redeemed me, and placed me uh, into Christ and has filled me with the Holy Spirit. You see the problem. We then, become, we then start dealing with something we call an identity problem. Is if I am a Christian, if I am a follower of Christ, I should be reflecting the character of Christ. The nature of Christ should be reflected in my very own nature. And when my life isn't doing those things, then I'm wondering why not. Well, that's a really good question. And we should answer the question of why you ought to, if you are a Christian, why you must be a peacemaker. But let's define the word peacemaker. We want to define our words before we start talking about things because we want to make sure that we are clear on what the Bible is talking about. A peacemaker is one who actively labors to establish harmony with others in every circumstance. Again, a peacemaker is one who actively labors to establish harmony with others in every circumstance. And if we want to understand what peacemaking looks like, we need to look no further than the Bible and no further than Jesus Christ. And so uh, to begin, I want to look at the life of Christ and how Christ's labor uh, to make peace with God and man should be our uh, litmus test and our foundation 
as peacemakers if we are in Christ. So in three short phrases, we'll look at Christ's life and labor to make peace with us in his life. So the first one is this, that he bore our humanity. You should write that down. Uh, what did Christ do? How did he make peace? Like how, what does peacemaking look like biblically? What does God's word say about peace? Well, let's look at what Christ did to make peace. He bore our humanity. And to paint the picture just a little bit, I want you to understand the pre-incarnation of Christ. You have God the Father sitting on the throne of heaven. And you have the Son exalted to the right hand of the Father. You have all of the heavenly hosts who are worshiping him day and night, as we read multiple times throughout Scripture, in the heavens at all times, the heavenly hosts and the angels, the seraphim, they're all are surrounding the throne of God and they are singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Okay, so we have, this is this Christ glorified, enthroned in the heavens. He doesn't have any problems. Right? He is perfect and in every way, exalted and glorified. No pain, nothing. Glorified to the right hand of the Father. Now, when we start looking at Philippians 2, which you can jot that reference down, when we think of him bearing our humanity, many of us think about Christ only in his humanity. And that's one of the problems. We don't really understand who Christ is because we only think about him in his 30-some-odd years here on earth, and we don't see him who he was in his pre-incarnation, and who he is now in his exalted and uh, in, in, in his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. We just gonna look at him at the thirty years that he was here on earth. Well, that's problematic because we don't understand the great cost and the great weight that God has stepped down from the heavens, down from the throne, and come to bear our humanity. And when you look at Philippians two, starting in verses three through eight, uh, you start first in the first half of this. Scripture with the practical application, but I want to start at the bottom because it helps us understand this practical application of peacekeeping in our own life. What did Christ do to make peace? Well, let's look at verse 6 first. If you're there, if not, you can just listen here. We're talking about Jesus Christ, who, though that he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even verse 6, Jesus was in the form of God. He was God, right? Uh, he was in the same essence of God. He was God. Same essence, co-equal with God eternally. Now, although that is the truth, look at verse 6. Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing that he should fight for or wrestle within the framework of his role in the triune nature of God. Okay, simply this, that although he was equal to God, he didn't look at the Father and say, well, we're co-equal, why don't you go down there? That's not what he did. He, as a matter of fact, he says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't say, hey, well, because we're all co-equal here, why do I got to do this? But he humbled himself. He did not grasp for his co-eternality with the Father. Instead, he, what? Verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You want to talk about the humility and the humiliation of being exalted in, in the heaven to the right hand of the Father, being co-eternal with God, and then stepping down and taking on human flesh? Was he still God? Absolutely, fully God and fully man. But the humiliation... 
and the humility of Christ to step down to bear our flesh and to put his self in our place. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, well, absolutely, but it gets worse, right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right, that's a lot more weighty when we think of right, Christ pre-incarnate, Christ incarnate. And even now as we understand Christ being raised, Christ being ascended to the Father at the right hand of the Father, there is so much of history. Most all of history is Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father and all things are under his subjection. But yet we focus on the 33 odd years that he was here. And if that's all that you think about with Christ, you will never understand what it meant that he bore our humanity. Because that was the shortest time span that he was anything but exalted to the right hand of the Father. And as soon as he was done, as soon as he finished the work of taking our place that we could be with him, he was then exalted to the right hand of the Father, and then everything has been subjected under his feet. I want that to give you some weight of the work of Christ in bearing our humanity. But he didn't just bear our humanity. He bore our sins and death. Isaiah 53 Verses 4 through 5 says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I want you to notice something in in the landscape of peacemaking. One of the problems with with our world and making peace uh, is that we're willing to make peace when other people first own up to it, other people first come to you and try to make it right. When other people basically do all the work, you're willing with your hands in your pocket to say, I accept Right? I mean, that is the way that, that we make peace often in our culture, right? And we say things like, well, I'm not going to go make peace unless they come make peace with me, right? Isn't that the way that we, isn't that the way that we often make peace? And we're often lauded uh, to make peace that way. That's really nice of you that if somebody came to you that, uh, that you would forgive them. It's like bahui, right? That's not biblical. That's not biblical peacemaking, right? I mean, if that were biblical peacemaking, uh, then, then, then Isaiah 53 would say something completely different, Right? I mean, if this was all about Christ dealing with his own issues, it would say, surely he has borne his griefs and carried his sorrows. Well, Christ doesn't have any griefs and no sorrows. It says, we esteem him stricken. He was pierced for his transgressions. He was crushed for his iniquities. He had no transgressions. He had no iniquities. Do you see how our ideas of peacemaking are completely opposite of the gospel? We think that people should pay for it themselves, and then after they have come to their own conclusions and their own realities of their own culpability, and they have in their heart made it right, then they can come to me, and then I'll pat them on the back and say, well, I'm glad you did all that work on your own, and I'm so glad that it worked out, and I will forgive you because you've done every single thing necessary to receive my forgiveness. Do you see that? That's not peacemaking. That's not peacemaking whatsoever. But instead, here, we have us who have personal culpability before God, us with griefs and sorrow, us with transgressions and iniquities. Us belongs the chastisement of God. And us who belong the wounds of condemnation and judgment before God. And this is what Christ did in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I want you to notice the sacrifice necessary to bring peace. All right, And it starts with bringing peace 
to man and to God. That Christ came, and you got a sufficient exposition of the gospel last week. And so we understand our need for peace with God, what it took to have peace with God. This week, I want us to zoom in on the reality of the sacrifice necessary for peacemaking. That Christ's chastisement by the Father brought us peace. With the wounds of Christ on the cross, as the wrath of God was poured out on the Son, through that we receive healing. Do you see the backwards or the counterintuitive nature of biblical peacemaking? Biblical peacemaking takes you and I bearing the brunt, bearing the sacrifice, and doing the work that is necessary to make peace peace in our relationships because we reflect the character of our Father who also sacrificed and bore the brunt of peacemaking. So Christ bore our sins and death. And then thirdly, he didn't just bear our sins and death. He bore the wrath of God. Thirdly, he bore the wrath of God. And I want you, even before we get there, if you go back to the bearing our sins and death, like you recognize that that Jesus bared all the things that we are most uh, plagued with in our lives. Like all of our sins. Like you know what you think about all the time? If you're, I hope you do. If you don't, you need to start thinking about it, right? Just how dreadful that your sins are and like how you create so much chaos and so much calamity in your own life. Uh, or you realize, I got so many broken relationships. I got all of these problems in my life. Like, that's like Christ came because the reality is, is you mess up everything. I mess up everything. So it shows us the necessity of Christ coming because our sins are proof that there is a deeper problem. And then after that, he, he takes our death. Like, you know, all of us in some way or another do things in our life to prolong the distance between where we are and the time we die. Like, we all do it, don't we? Whether it's diet, whether it's exercise, uh, whatever it is that you do, whether you try to take magic pills that make you live longer, I don't think those, those don't exist, okay? Uh, we, try to, we try to push that day off as long as we can. Why? Because we know that's the end and that's bad. And yet Christ came to bear that death on our behalf so that no, we would no longer live in the fear of the condemnation of sin and what is the condemnation of death that leads to the second death and separation from God. He came to take care of those things. You can talk about peacemaker. That's a peacemaker. Okay, then he also bore the wrath of God. 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Again, it wasn't that, that we came and, and you know, there was this little twinkling in our heart that loved God just a little bit, that really impressed upon God to say, now that, one, that person loves me enough, I should go down there and do something. Absolutely not. He loved us. We did not love him. But God loved us in this way that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, write the word propitiation in your notes. Propitiation. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. That's an important word. And often when you read this word, uh, and as a matter of fact, if you don't have an ESV and you have another version, it may say words like expiation or atonement. And I will just tell you, although I think most translations are faithful, not all of them, but most of them, a lot of them are faithful, uh, the, the importance of this word propitiation is, uh, is a gospel, biblical, important word. Uh, 
I believe the word propitiation is proper in 1 John 4.10. Because propitiation is the Greek word helismos, which is the fact that God had loved us that he would send his son to turn away the wrath of God and bring us into his favor. That's, the word, that's what the word propitiation means. And I want you to sit on the word for a minute as we exposit it. Okay, That what God had done was sent his son to turn away his wrath and to bring us into favor with God. It's quite a bit different than expiation or even atonement. Right? Expiation gives this idea that, that it's the things that I did that are now wiped away. Do you see that? Which Expiation and atonement are really good gospel words and very good biblical words. And you need those words to uh, fully define and explain the gospel in different contexts. But in this context, propitiation is so important because it isn't that God sent Christ to just wipe away the sins. Right? That's, that's kind of impersonal, isn't it? That is, I've done some things, and now he's removed them. Has he done that? Absolutely. But he's done more than that. See, expiation is this idea that it's, it's impersonal. The things I've done are no longer held against me. But propitiation is a personal word. It's, a, it's something that turns a personal relationship into a union. And this idea that now in Christ... The wrath of God has been poured out on Christ, and now that turns the wrath of God on us now into favor. Did you see that? We're not just removing something. We're not just getting rid of something. We're saying that you had a relationship of strife and enmity with God. You are the child of wrath, and he has now turned you into a child of God who now lives in the favor of God. Did you see that? Quite different. It's a very personal statement. It's a very personal work of Christ. That he has taken us and personally, through his life, his death, his resurrection, through him producing repentance and faith in our life, have now turned us from wrath and brought us into a personal relationship with God where his favor rests on us. It's quite the different definition, isn't it? It's quite the importance of using the word propitiation and for us to even understand what the word means. That simply, that we have through Christ the turning away of God's wrath and the bringing us into favor. He's born our humanity, exalted to the right hand of the Father, come to earth to take our place. And in that place, he bears our sins and our death. He turns away the wrath of God by putting it on himself and bringing us into favor with God. That's a peacemaker, right? That is the biblical definition of peacemaking. And if we want to understand a biblical view of peacemaking, it's going to require us to do this, and it's point number one. You need to recount what it costs Jesus to make peace with you. Point number one on your outline. You should write it down that way. Recount what it cost Jesus to make peace with you. All peacemaking, all biblical peacemaking, is going to start at the foundation of the gospel. We know how to make peace because we have first had peace made with us in Christ. And we've responded to it of no work of our own. It's been a gift of grace and mercy bestowed to us in Christ. And even our response is not something that we can come up to on our own. Even repentance and faith is produced in you by the Holy Spirit. So you want to say, what part did you have? And Pastor, I haven't even prayed about it. Like, what part did you have in the gospel? The sin that made the gospel necessary. That's what you added. Okay? So we talk about conflict. Like, what part did you add in the conflict? The conflict. That's what you added. Like, you added the conflict. And it's, in so many ways, it's important for us, and I didn't say so many, in every way, it's important for you and I to recount what it cost Jesus to make peace with us. Because if you're going to make peace with anyone else, 
you got to build it on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you start your peacemaking anywhere else, anywhere else, you are not going to have peacemaking. Right? You may have peace faking. Right? You may have this idea that, well, I'm just going to overlook it. Like, that's going to help. I don't know how many times you've overlooked conflict and just to have it come up later as a volcano. Right? The reality is that's how we often live. Well, we can change that if we will have our peacemaking built on the foundation of the gospel of peace that Jesus Christ has first made between us and the Father. And that, that now that we have God in our life, now that the Holy Spirit is filling us, we would then display the genuine characteristics of our Father, who is a peacemaking God, and our lives that we would be peacemaking people. Now you see, a genuine marker of a believer, of a Christian, is that we display the characteristic of peacemaking, just like our Father did. So why do I say you need to recount? Like The first thing you need to do is recount. Well, because it's important for you to understand that the gospel wasn't just something that happened at one time in your life. We say that frequently here. And so many people in our culture, and I would even say genuine Christians. There are genuine Christians in our world uh, who think back to to the, the gospel and the time they responded to the gospel, and they look at it as just that. It was a time in the past. It was a time where I recognized my sin and I turned from my sin. I placed my trust into Jesus Christ and it was about 10 years ago and that was, that was great, but I really don't, it doesn't have any bearing on my life today. It doesn't have a lot of consequences on my life today because that's something I did back then. It's like, well, there was your first peacemaking mistake, that you believe the gospel is something far off that way that doesn't have any effect on my life today. I'll tell you how big of a problem that is. Uh, check out this real world experience, okay? Uh, how many of you would think about your wedding day in your wedding anniversary, and say, honey, listen, that was just a ceremony. I know me and my wife, we celebrate our four-year anniversary in a week and a half, and if I just said, honey, we don't really have to celebrate that. That was something that just happened years ago. Like, I know it really got us started, and it got us going, but to really recount what we did there, that's that's non-consequential. I don't need that. You don't need that. It was just something we did, and it it was necessary to get it started, but it's really not something we apply to the rest of our lives. How do you think that's going to go? I'll be calling Pastor Evan. Hey, do you have a counseling opening? (laughs) Me and my wife need to come see you. Uh, Okay, it's nonsense, right? It's nonsense because you recognize that your marriage, right? You remember the day, and that's what you did in your wedding, I pray. That's what me and my wife did. We remembered back... Because that is the day that we forsook all other people. My eyes are on her. Our eyes are on me. We forsook all other candidates, all other suitors uh, in the name of the union between a man and a woman. And we said, I love you and I love you. And we're going to commit to this forever in the bond of marriage in Christ. We remember that. I'm going to tell you what. If you don't remember that every day after you're married, you're problematic. We also remember those who came around us to pray and commit to esteeming our marriage. We remember there was people. Uh, my father did my wedding. He's a, he's a pastor of a small church in northeast Texas. And he, I remember him in his thick country accent just preaching the gospel and reminding us what marriage is and how it represents Christ in the church. And there was family and friends around us, and they, they committed to praying that we would esteem our marriage and that they would honor and esteem our marriage. And then Kayla and I gave vows to each other, made promises, promises wound up and wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would love one another and cherish each other, and it didn't matter what came about, whether in sickness and health, and rich or poverty, 
Well, whatever it was, we committed in our vows. And every year we, we think back to what we did. And we realign, if we've, if we've faded off any way whatsoever, we, we realign our commitment to that day. And that's important, isn't it? In the same way, when we think about the gospel, we can't think about it as a far-off event that happened in our life that was a one-time event good for what it did, and, and it kind of got me on a trajectory, and now I just keep going. No, no, no. The gospel is the path. The gospel is the foundation. It's not a, it is not a kickstarter. It is the whole life of the Christian. And everything in the life of the Christian is built from the foundation of the gospel. And that, through the text that we're focusing on, is true with peace making. It comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say so we see Christ... His work, his labor to make peace with God and man. And I want us to take some time as we apply Matthew 5, 9 to our own peacemaking. We need to know how do I do it? What, is, what does the Bible teach me about what I ought to do to make peace? The labor of peacemaking, interpersonal peacemaking. Right? This, is, this is where we're going to zoom in, isn't it? Because we all need some help in our interpersonal peacemaking. Let's look, and I want you to turn there in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We'll start there in verse 12. It says there in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now again, I want to I make that connection there in verse 12 back to where we were in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? I mean, we're talking about people here who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, who have turned from their sin and placed their faith in Christ's work on our behalf to put us in right standing with God and then filled with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead. And therefore, in that position as children of God, we can have the capacity and the propensity in verse 12 as God's chosen ones, as His children, holy and loved, because that's what Christ makes us. Therefore, we will have and can put on compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, let me tell you this. You, you just take an inventory of your life and your conflict over the last month. If you would have this month put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, would you have resolved all your conflict? Look at me. Give me something. Give me a, uh, give me a, give me a, yeah, you would have, wouldn't you? I bet you would have. I would have as well. Right? I have to produce the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And that's going to take a lot of personal sacrifice, isn't it? And it, and it truly is. If I'm going to put on a compassionate heart, that means I can't have a selfish heart. Listen, I have a lot of ambition, okay? I have a lot of ambitions. I have a lot of desires. And I'm going to tell you what. Ambition and desire is a great thing for a Christian. It's a wonderful thing to have desires and ambition. But it is one thing to have desire and ambition. It's an absolute other thing to make your desire and your ambition prime. Number one. Right? When my desire and my ambitions become 
the most important thing in my life, I then have an idolatry issue that we talked about last week. And I'm no longer about the gospel and I'm no longer about peacemaking. I'm about building my own kingdom. I'm about kingdom making and it's not about God's kingdom, it's about my kingdom. So where there's going to be no peacemaking when it comes to you building your own kingdom because when you build your own kingdom, you have your own desires and wants and ambitions for it. And if people want to align themselves to your kingdom, they can't come in and they can't live there. You're building your own kingdom, and it's called idolatry. We can't be selfish. As a matter of fact, we've got to be kind and, humili- and humble. We have to have humility. We have to have the meekness that we talked about a couple weeks ago in the Beatitudes, and we have to have patience. You know what? Patience, that's something I lack quite a bit, and I have to pray to God to produce patience in me. You can ask my wife. Ask Pastor Evan. All right? I'm, I'm a, I just like to get things done. I've got to get things done. Uh, the problem with that is often... Uh, that we can run over people on the way to get to where we're going. And that doesn't create peace, does it? That creates pieces of people laying in, around. But it doesn't create peacemaking. It doesn't create a community of people that reflect the character of God. So we have to recognize that we can't do this alone, but it, we have to do it. It takes work and it takes personal sacrifice. We have to do it through the work of the Spirit because there's something else verse 13 tells us to do that's very difficult for us to do on our own. Impossible, one would say. Look at verse 13. As we've clothed ourselves in this way from verse 12, we also, in verse 13, says we have to bear with one another. That, that word means endure, bear with one another. We have to endure with one another. And you know what it means to endure? It means the fact that there's people that you have things against and people that have things against you. People have said some things that you don't like. You've said some things to people that they don't like. You've done things that they don't like. They've done things that you don't like. We have all sinned against one another in some way, whether it is a small way or a large way. We have all, as we have fallen short of the glory of God and because we've sinned, we've all also sinned against one another. And we... We don't just get to say, well, we've all sinned against one another, so let's sit in our sin. Let's just sit here and just, just, just be upset about it. That's not what it says, is it? We have to bear with one another. I have to show deference to others. Deference, right? I've got to defer their feelings over mine. I've got to think about them as more important than myself. I have to consider not even my own uh, desire, but also theirs. I have to esteem them above mine. It's, you see, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who didn't account equality with God, although he is co-equal with God. He didn't grasp at it and say, well, I'm equal. No, no, he humbled himself by saying, we are equal, but I have a position to take. I have a responsibility to fulfill. And that responsibility requires me going on and being clothed in humanity. In the same way, for you and I, if we're going to bear and endure with one another, we, can't, we, we can say, yes, we're all equal in Christ. We, every single one of us are equal in Christ. But that equality with Christ does not also include that, that you don't humble yourself and you don't bring yourself low to create peace and to create an opportunity for peace to be made. As a matter of fact, so many of us, if we just started the fact that we're all equal, we wouldn't have as much peace. Or we would have way more peace. Excuse me. I think the problem is that so many of us think the other, that we're higher than the other people. We think we're more important than other people. We believe that whether it is our position in society or whether it is our own minds that breed all kinds of false ideals, that you may be smarter or better looking or more popular, you, and somehow, even if you would admit to say, I don't believe I'm this much you know, more important than people, but I believe I'm just this much more important. I know, I know we think that way, and you should know you think that way, right? Here's why. 
Because when somebody invites you to do something, maybe some Christian community, you say, what I've got to do is more important, right? Oh, you know, uh, I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to help out with the dishes, honey, but what I've got to do is just a little bit more important, right? Your husband calls you, says, hey, honey, I, I really would like you, I'd like some help. Uh, I uh, almost got a ticket today because the car didn't have its tags and inspection. Would you go and take it in while I'm at work today? I have way too much to do this morning than to help you. Right? We, none of us are going to say, well, I think I'm just immensely more important than the other person. But we all make decisions every day that say, I'm just a little bit more important than you. I'm just a little bit more important than you. Absolutely not. We, that's not how we live. We have this mind with us in Christ Jesus that we, we would submit and we would, we would lower our position that we could be people who make peace and people who exhibit the character of God. I'm going to show deference to other people. It's going to take sacrificing my own feelings, right? I mean, that's, that is what we have to do here. Do you remember Jesus Christ, even as he's uh, there, uh, about to be, uh, just right before he's about to be arrested and crucified, when he's on the, the Mount of Olives and he's praying, and uh, he says, God, if you will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will. That's deference. That's like, I'm here for the will of the Father. And Jesus says it over and over again in the Gospels, that I have come to do the will of my Father in heaven, and I will accomplish the will of my Father. Over and over again, Jesus shows deference, not because he is less than God, but because he doesn't account equality with God, something that he should laud over the situation. Instead, he says, I have a responsibility to display my nature and my character through the fact that I have a job to do, and I have a responsibility and in the same way, if we wouldn't laud our self-importance or our perceived self-importance, and we would instead say, I have a job, I have a responsibility to display the character of God through my peacemaking, and then our job and our responsibility that is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ leads us to make sacrifices for peace. So we are going to have to sacrifice our own feelings, and in many cases, we're going to have to sacrifice our feelings even when we've been wronged. We don't just sacrifice our feelings uh, when we have done wrong, which is oftentimes what our society says. Well, if you did it, then you need to sacrifice to make it right. Well, sure, that's a great principle, but that's not the only way it works. Christ didn't just sacrifice because he did something. Absolutely not. Christ did nothing wrong. He was perfect. In all of his ways, in his very nature, he was perfect. But you were wrong, and Christ made peace. You see, peace doesn't just happen when the person at fault brings it to the person who has been wronged, it happens when the person who has been wronged says, we're going to make peace. I'm going to make peace. And I'm not just going to make it when you come to me. I'm going to come to you and we're going to make it. And I'm going to, as it says in verse 13 and the rest of it, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Did you notice there at the end of verse 13 that the foundation of our peacemaking is that the Lord has forgiven you in Christ. Did you see the gospel was the foundation of peacemaking right there? Why do we forgive? Not because it's a great societal thing to do. Not because in our world and in our society that we've learned that forgiveness breeds more opportunity for societal advancement. But because God has forgiven you, you must also forgive. The foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And above all these things in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
And then let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. We talked about heart last week, didn't we? We said it's just about cardia. It's not about the organ that's being protected in your ribcage that's pumping blood and oxygen through your body so you don't go into asphyxia and die. We're not talking, we're not talking about that. We said the heart is the, the whole man, the whole person. And if we are going to say Christ rules in my life, then he ought to rule in my relationships, and he ought to rule in my propensity and capacity to make peace. If you're going to say Christ rules in your heart, then Christ ought to rule in your relationships and rule in your desire to make peace. We did say that this sermon series is uh, kingdom happiness, didn't we? Where's the happiness? Well, it's coming. Look, it's coming. Look at the text. And be thankful. What happens when we make peace? We have a thankful place, don't we? We have a thankful church. We have a thankful family. And it doesn't just stop. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We've got to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You say the peace of Christ rules in your heart? You say that Christ is the ruler of your life? Do you know what God's word says? Does it dwell in you richly? I mean, in your life, does the word of God take precedent in everything? Do I know what God's word says? I know so many people said, I'd be willing to make peace. I just don't know how to do it. Well, one, learn the gospel. And to learn the Bible, because I'm going to tell you what, if the Bible had one theme, and it does, it's peace between God and man. Like that's the whole Bible. It's how God has revealed himself to humanity to show us both the distinction and the difference between God and man and to also provide the provision for God and man to be in unity forever through the bond of peace, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole Bible, how God has made peace with man. And so if you want to learn how you're going to make peace, you're going to have to know the Bible. As a matter of fact, when me and my wife, we talk about uh, conflict. Me and my wife have conflict. Did you know that? We do in our house quite often. And because uh, yeah, conflict's not a bad thing. It's what you do with it. Is, is that right? Okay. Uh, we, and we do this thing where we, have, we sit down and we try to look at each other in the eyes. And we say, well, what does the Bible say about this? Like, what does the Bible say? Because it's not going to be my opinion versus your opinion or my greatest thought against your greatest thought, your philosophy against my philosophy. It's going to be like, hey, listen, the only winners here are those who submit themselves to the Lord and who reconcile their marriage. Because you know what? If I'm going to win my argument and I'm going to lose intimacy in our marriage, I didn't win anything at all. And if, and if she tries to win an argument and she loses intimacy in our marriage, we don't win. But we both win when we step back and submit ourselves and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And when we do, we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. That we say, hey, here's what the Bible says. And we recognize, as you will in conflict, that you both did something wrong. You may have a greater and a lesser sin, but all sin is sin in the sight of God. And all sin must be repented of and reconciled through the bond of Jesus Christ. And so... I can teach and admonish one another. And then our home can be a center where the word of God is, is exalted and lifted up as what it is, the very words of God. And we can instruct and teach and encourage one another through it. And you want to talk about kingdom happiness? What happens? Then we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Did you see the outcome of peacemaking? In our church, did you see the outcome of peacemaking? Like, that's why I often say, hey, listen... <laughs> If you can't, in your peacemaking, put your arms around each other, let the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, sing some songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God, you didn't make peace. You're a peace faker. 
And a peace faker is just one centimeter from being a peace breaker. And if we're going to be peacemakers, we're going to have to make sure that our lives look like Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And then as those people who can say, whatever I do, because I'm here for the peace of the gospel, then I can say, whatever I do in word or deed, I'm going to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. That's kingdom happiness. Like when I can live in right relationship with God and other people in such a way where everything I do, I can say I do that in the name of the Lord Jesus because I'm at peace with God, I'm at peace with people, and everything about my life is to bring glory to God, and I have to do that firmly in my relationships with God and my relationships with other people, and often it's going to take me sacrificing my preferences and sacrificing my desires because I desire something far greater, and that is the glory of God. You can sum it up this way in point number two. You need to sacrifice for the sake of peacemaking. Sacrifice for the sake of peacemaking. As you write that, there's also another scripture reference that, that Paul says, you know, as we keep the bond of peace, we should, uh, we should be able to uh, live together in harmony. And, it, and after he ends that, he goes to the last part of the greeting, and he says, and greet them with a holy kiss. And I thought, well, that's a great litmus test for peace, isn't it? Like, you guys just, y'all were just yelling at each other, and you said you forgive each other. Any holy kisses available? Like, and I, like, we don't, like, we don't exercise that particular thing at our church, okay? Not because, I, I mean, by all means, if I go, you go to a church that does, it, it needs to be a holy kiss. It needs to be biblical, right? It needs to be for brotherly or sisterly affection. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but you get the point, Right? Do you, see, do you see the affection and the intimacy that has to happen in peacemaking? Right? There has to be this ability for you to live in close relationship and give close affection to people that have wronged you and that you have wronged. And if you can't do that, you didn't make peace. Moving on. Okay. Uh, Ken Sandy wrote a book. I didn't get to this in the nine, so here we are. I've got a couple minutes. Uh, and I'm saying this because most of you, if you came to the Family Matters Conference, were given this book. I just I want to keep pointing you back to resources that we've given you. Uh, and if you don't have it, we're, we'll, have it, we'll offer it in the bookstore soon. You can purchase it. But there's the four G's of peacemaking, right? You want, you want to make peace. Uh, here are four G's that help you as an individual sacrifice for the sake of peacemaking. Uh, and these aren't all, depending on which one you read, these are derivatives of, of his uh, principles. Uh, the first is you need to glorify God. Right? Whatever you do in your peacemaking, it's got to glorify God. If it didn't glorify God, I'm going to tell you it wasn't peacemaking. You weren't peacemaking. Right? You could be peacefaking, or, or even like some of us, we think, well, I, I like to be a peacemaker, but don't confuse being a peacemaker with a peacekeeper. Right? I think everyone in here can be a peacekeeper. Right? As long as no one ruffles feathers, I'm not going to ruffle feathers. Right? That's just called passivity. Okay? And you're not called to passivity, you're called to make peace. Okay? And so when we say glorifying God, glorifying God means that when there, is, when there is any conflict, you are going to broker peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that would bring glory to God, because as you bring peace into relationships, you point people to the gospel, and God is glorified in it. You've got to glorify God. Secondly, you need to get the log out of your own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. That's a reference from Matthew 7. Basically says, like, you know, we need, as Christians, there is room to judge, right? I, ooh, I love this part. Uh, like, so many people in our society say, don't, don't judge. Like, you, you can't judge. Jesus says don't judge. It's like, uh, like, no, that's not what it says. Jesus says don't judge, but he says this, don't judge, for in the same way you judge, you will be judged. So it's like saying, be careful how you judge, because in the measure that you judge, it will be measured back to you. And so Jesus says, as you judge, 
as you make judgments about sin and peacemaking and reconciliation, here's the way to judge. First, stand in front of the mirror and get the log out of your eye. You need to judge yourself first. And then get the log out of your own eye. And that's another place people want to stop too. It says, well, you need to look in the mirror. For what? To get the log out of your eye. And then go and then continue judging and making peace. It's not, oh, well, you, you can't judge me. Go look in the mirror. It's like, okay, to do what? To make peace with God because you have probably sinned against God. You have a log in your eye you need to take out, repent, and then say, now, God, uh, prepare in me a heart to make peace. Now, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go to my brother or my wife or somebody in the church, and I'm going to say, hey, here's the deal. Uh, here's, this has come up, uh, and I recognize that as I was going to bring this up to you, God brought it to my attention that I had a log in my own eye, and I had repented, and I want to repent before you as well. I've already repented towards God. Uh, and I want to seek forgiveness here. And I took the log out of my eye, and I want to recognize that I have a log in front of my eye before you, and I've taken it out in the presence of God, seeking repentance to you. Would you forgive me? And then also say, and you know, in, in the meantime, you also, there's a speck in your eye. And I want to help you get that out. The reality is we have both sinned, but I want to get the log out of my own eye before I can bring it up to you. Judgment is not the condemnation in Scripture. It's judgment like a Pharisee. It's recognizing that you first also have sin that needs to be recognized before you can take someone else's sin before them. And then gently engage, which is what I just talked about. You need to gently engage with people. Peacemaking always takes engagement. And that's, that's the difference between a peacemaker and a peace faker. A peace faker says, nah, it's okay, you know. Okay, right? The Bible does say it's to one's glory to overlook an offense, and I'm all about that. It is one's glory to overlook an offense. I love that verse. But the problem is, is like, if you can actually look over it and be, uh, have a pure heart and pure conscience about the matter and move past it, by all means, overlook an offense. But the problem is, is people confuse overlooking an offense with being passive and not bringing up something that's very offensive and that has tarnished your relationship with the other person. That's not peacekeeping. That's peace faking. Right? You're going to have to engage with people gently to restore and to make peace. And then lastly is go and be reconciled. You need to go and you need to seek forgiveness. You don't leave the room until forgiveness is both received and reciprocated. You don't leave the room until it is. You go and be reconciled. All right, lastly, we talk about our own peacemaking and our interpersonal relationships. We need to understand the labor of ambassadorship the labor of peacemaking in a corrupt, warring world. Okay, one more verse I want to send you to in the last 20 seconds. 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians. Flip, flip there. Go, yeah, there you go. All right, there we go. I'll flip there. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'll read as you're getting there. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 uh, through verse 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're a creature of peace. How do I know that you can make peace? Because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. That warring person who couldn't make peace is gone. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, you're a peacemaker. All of this is from God. Why can you make peace? Because God has created in you a new creation, given you a new heart. Therefore, you can be a peacemaker, and you ought to be a peacemaker because that's who God is. And Through Christ, he made peace with us, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, I want you to notice something here. Many Christians get this half right. I know that God has reconciled me to himself through Christ, period. But it doesn't stop, does it? 
It says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We now have a serve place in the kingdom of God as ministers. That means servants, servants of reconciliation, that we all have a job to go reconcile people to God and to one another. It's our job. It's our ministry. That is, in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I love that. He forgave us. Our trespasses are no longer counted against us in the presence of God through Christ because he's made peace with us. And in that, we're just reasserting what we just read in verse 18. We now have been entrusted. It's been given to us as he entrusts us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, with that message and that entrustment of a responsibility, we are now called ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? It's an accredited diplomat sent by a country into a foreign country. That, that's, what, that's what an ambassador is. And their job is to represent their country in the midst of a foreign country. And they represent their country in all things political and necessary uh, for engaging in conversation and uh, international law, all those good things. Okay. Now, there's a reason why we see this in Scripture because it's the perfect example of the Christian as we know in Scripture says that we are citizens of another place. Our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. Well, there you go. You're an ambassador. You are now in a foreign land. You are in exile, and your country is awaiting your arrival. And you are now an ambassador. You're in a foreign country, and you are now representing God in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And your representation requires you to be a representative of reconciliation. You have to be someone, when somebody comes and says, hey, how do I get to that country? Can you, how do I get a passport into the kingdom of heaven? Well, let me tell you how you get a passport into the kingdom of heaven. And you share the gospel, okay? And, it, and even with that, it's like, okay, you teach people the gospel and then say, hey, if you say that you're a member and a resident of the kingdom of heaven that you call a kingdom of peace, why is your home a wreck? Why is your marriage a wreck? If you're a boss of a company, why does everybody leave your company after six months? Because your, your environment that you have is a wreck. How can you be an ambassador to the kingdom of peace if you yourself can't even broker peace in your relationships with other people? Okay? That's the importance of ambassadorship. That it is both you have the right information, but it's also that you have the right heart that reflects the character of the God of peace and the kingdom of peace. And you're the ambassador here to preach peace to people who are far off because that's what Christ has done to bring us near. And if your life doesn't exist to bring people near to God and near to one another through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not an ambassador. You're not displaying the characteristics of the Father. And there's probably not a lot of assurance of your faith and what you're even doing here. Because you have a job and you have a responsibility. We're ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. If you're wondering, how is God speaking to the world? God's making his appeal through us. <laughs> if you're like, well, I haven't been opening my mouth lately. Well, that may be why a lot of people are thinking God's not speaking lately. Because you haven't been speaking lately about the gospel. You come here, you're going to think, God still speaks today. Well, absolutely. Because God's making his appeal through his people. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the first peacemaking responsibility of every person. Go be reconciled to God. Turn from your sins. Place your trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. He will draw you near to him. He will fill you with his spirit. And then you go be an ambassador of peace to the world in Christ Jesus. Point number three on your outline. You got to be Christ's ambassador for peacemaking. 
Be Christ's ambassador for peacemaking. We've got to be his representative here. I'm going to tell you what, if your spouse can't come up and say you're a great ambassador, then we, gotta, we have some work to do at home. If your kids can't come up and tell people that you're a great ambassador of Christ, we've got some work to do at home. And if people in your workplace say that you're not a great ambassador, we've got some work to do at work, on top of our work. Right, peacemakers, right? we can't afford to just stay out of it. Right? That's not what peacemaking is. Right? Christ didn't just stay out of it. God didn't stay out of it. Right? We can't say their problem is none of my business, which is what we do even in the church. Well, I know they got problems, but it ain't none of my business. It is every bit of your business. Because if you're an ambassador, making peace is all your business. And you need to help people make peace because you are a person of peace who is bound for the kingdom of peace. We got work to do. Because peacemaking is the business of the gospel. Make it our business. Let's pray. God, I pray that our church grows in our zeal for making peace. That we don't fall into the lies of our culture, which says we just can live in passivity. That we can live as long as we don't bring it up. Everything's fine as long as we don't bring it up. God, we know that's not true. We know that that's, that's, a, that's a cheap way out of reconciliation, and that's a very cheap gospel. That's a gospel that doesn't save. It's a gospel that doesn't move in power. It's, it's no good news at all. But we understand the gospel is a gospel of peace. It's a gospel, it's a good news that makes peace. First, with you in heaven and us here on earth through the intermediary work of Christ on the cross. And in that same way, we're given the message of reconciliation. You entrust with us this message of the gospel. And God, we recognize that all of the relationships on the world can be peaceful, but if we don't first get it right with you, we're never going to have eternal peace. But we also know that it's very true that without the gospel, we don't have peace in relationships on earth. People may say they do, people may be peace fakers, but we recognize that the gospel power, even in our interpersonal relationships with one another, are the key to making peace. I pray that that would be what our church is known for, to be brokers of peace, to be ambassadors of peace. God, empower us to do that. Convict our hearts. Move us to be making peace in our home and in our families and in our church. God, I pray there is any in our church who are in enmity with one another, in a conflict with one another. God, that you would prick their hearts, that you would, you would bring the conviction of your spirit on them, that they would make peace. They wouldn't be peace, just peacekeepers. They wouldn't be peace fakers, but they would make peace through the bond of the gospel. Pray that same in their home, in their marriages, with their children whether their children live with them or are far off. God, so many more areas that we need to pray for, and let's lift them up to you. And I pray that we would be ambassadors of Christ, that we would make peace in this community, share the gospel boldly, bring people into right relationship with you. God, be with us even as we finish by singing praises to you. Let us lift our voices up as we glorify you today. In Christ's name, amen.